You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year. From artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors, and in this case, diversity champions. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer, and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country they call home. Dai Lee is a champion for diversity and, as a result, founded the Dawn Network, a platform that gives voice to diverse and inclusive talent who are shaping today's society. Dai speaks, consults and helps organisations understand the economic and social benefits of leveraging diversity and inclusion as part of their business development, market innovation and corporate responsibility. Before establishing Dawn, Dai was an award-winning journalist, filmmaker and broadcaster with the ABC. She was named one of AFR Westpac's top 100 influential women in Australia in 2014. Born in Saigon, Vietnam, Dai spent many years in refugee camps in Southeast Asia before being accepted for resettlement in Australia. She currently serves as an advisory board member to Multicultural New South Wales. Thanks so much for joining us, Dai. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So for those people who don't know what you do, I mean, you're the founder of Dawn, you're an expert on diversity. Um, For those who haven't heard of your work, can you just tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Um, Look, I set up Dawn um, about four years ago um, with the purpose of actually driving the conversation um, to raise awareness and to really try to activate as well um, uh, individuals as well as uh, corporations, organisations, to really look at the talent that they have within the organisations. At the same time, also um, activate the individuals to think about their leadership capabilities and what they can do to contribute and step up. In particular, um, those that are from you know, being a, a refugee, my, a former refugee myself, but of, of refugee backgrounds and, and in particular Asian-Australian backgrounds. So um, my purpose was to see an increase in representations um, across all of our mainstream institutions to be reflective of the society that we have. And so I, went, I set about to start up Dawn and to, to start that conversation really. Great. So now we'll circle back to Dawn and some of the work that you're doing with that. But just to give people some context, I understand that you're born in Saigon in Vietnam, and you've mentioned that you um, came to Australia after you know, as a refugee. Just tell us first, yep. where were your parents from and their ethnicity, just so that we're clear. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, as I said, I was a, a refugee. I came here. Um, as a child refugee from Vietnam. So my um, as a single mum household, my father disappeared during the Vietnam War. So my mum um, took her three daughters, I was being I being the eldest, and escaped uh, war-torn Vietnam at the end of the war in April 75. So between 75 and 79, we were languishing in uh, refugee camps in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, first, we were in the Philippines, and then we were then in Hong Kong camps, um, and 
And then after so spending a few years there, we were then accepted for resettlement um, to Australia uh, at the end of 1979. Um, so, yeah, so we came here as refugees with not a word of English, with um, I think I remember we had probably one small suitcase, um, tiny, um, with a few items, personal items, and a few things that we were able to purchase while we were in Hong Kong. When I, you know, because I was in Hong Kong, I actually went to work while I was in camp, so um, I was able to earn some income to buy a few things to bring over to Australia. So, so we we settled here in um, in first of all when we got here, we were at um, Fair Meadow down the south coast in Wollongong. Um, it's, it was a migrant hostel there, and uh, you know, obviously the first thing that um, we did or myself and my two younger sisters did were we were enrolled into the local primary school and learned our um, learned English so that was the first thing that we had to do so that we could actually obviously live and, and integrate better is to learn the language um, so yeah so we, we you know just, 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 yeah so how old were you when you came to Australia I was 11. Um, when I came, my God, people are going to work at my age. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's just uh, briefly talk about, well, really what this podcast is about, which is what does Lunar New Year mean to you? Look, you know, Lunar New Year obviously is a very important um, tradition uh, within the, um, you know, Vietnamese community and obviously overall in the Asian community. And um, it is a time that I know growing up, um, we really looked forward to the Lunar New Year because for us as young kids, it meant the red envelope with money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and it's a time to you, you wish your um, parents, your elders, get the blessings from them to wish you a great year ahead. Um, and I remember, um, you know, this, the, the, the little memory that, this, that I have of Vietnam growing up is going to my um, grandparents' place, my great-aunt's place, and, you know, you're going there with all of these little sweets, all of the um, – I think Vietnamese have these sweets. I don't know if other Asians have them, but all of the uh, sugar-coated coconut, tamarind, um, lotus seeds, all of that. I, I love that part of, of the Lunar New Year. So it's something that I always look forward to. So we, you know, so, so it's a time of, of ga gathering with families and getting money. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so we, we practice that quite um, for a while. I mean, I, uh, I suppose I've got my, uh, a 15-year-old son now. We don't practice it as religiously as we used to um, in a sense that we still do give the red envelope. Uh, we do get some of the sweets that we have, but not as, you know, like the, in the olden days or when I was much younger, like the house was filled with food and, you know, like it's just in preparation for the, for, for the whole week of New Year leading up to it and then the, the whole week of food eating and offerings and, uh, and all of that stuff. I don't have – I don't do that extent of, of celebration. Uh, I do maintain a little bit of it but not a lot. Oh, yes, there's lots of food associated with Lunar New Year. Now, 
let's come back to um, when you came here when you were 11 with your mother and uh, two sisters, um, yep. and she's a single mother. How in the world did she make her way with three daughters in a new country where she didn't speak the language? Oh, look, it was a struggle, an absolutely, absolute struggle for her. Obviously, English wasn't her first language, so it was difficult for her. Um, I think that um, she really, uh, I mean, back in those days in the 70s, unlike today, where there are a lot of services around for migrants and refugees resettling, in the 70s when you arrived, um, we were Catholic, so we were able to get some assistance from the local church in a sense that, you know, they enrolled us into schools, they, um, you know, found us at, uh, in ESL classes for my mum. So, that, so there are those uh, religious organisations that helped us, but most of the time we actually find our own um, way around society and around the community we were living in. Uh, so Ferrameadow was a very – it's a migrant town because it was part of Wollongong, which is B, which had BHP back then. So there still works. So there was a lot of migrants, earlier migrants, European migrants, who actually uh, settled there. So you had um, – People, your migrants of Italian uh, descent, of um, Greek, uh, of Maltese, Polish. So there are a lot of Europeans. Our family was the first Vietnamese refugee families in, in, in Wollongong. So she had to obviously find domestic work, uh, house, you know, cleaning houses, working in the back uh, in the restaurants and doing the dishes and cleaning. So she did that. Um, and, you know, we did not get back in those days, um, because the early settlement of, of refugees, that there weren't that many of us, the whole Lunar New Year thing, um, we didn't have, you know, you, you didn't have a red envelope, you can get all of those sweets, so there's none of that. Mm. Um, so it was a very quiet time for the first few years when we were, when we were in Australia. Uh, it wasn't as colourful, it wasn't as vibrant, it wasn't as lively as what we have today. Um, few years um, I know that, you know, there were no red envelopes <laughs> when we were poor. Um, there were no red envelopes at all. So, and there were no relatives as well because all of our relatives were still in Vietnam. And so did you then grow up in Ferry Meadow or in the Wollongong area or did you, where did you go to school and, and then where did you spend your time, you know, studying? So, yeah, so we, we were um, in Wollongong up till about when I was, I think, year nine. Um, and then we moved up to Cabramatta um, from, from, from the time I was in year 10 to the time I finished my HSC and then, of course, continued on my, my, my um, tertiary education. Uh, so once we moved up to Cabramatta in the mid-'80s, um, we actually saw more Asian faces than we've ever seen um, <laughs> in, in that area. I think because of that, post um, you know, closer to the community, closer to all of the shops and the groceries, all of that, we were then able to bring back that whole celebration of, you know, of the Lunar New Year or, or any other, like the Moon Festival as well. We, we, you know, the community here, the council areas do celebrate significant events. So we started to participate in that. Um, but, yeah, so, so the first few years of my life, I, you know, I, my my aim was to integrate and to learn the language and to be a new Australian as quickly as possible 
and I couldn't wait to shed all of my refugee clothes, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> um, but, you know, growing up in an Eastern kind of household with strict um, curfews, strict rules, um, it, 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 it was a challenge for me. Um, but, you know, I mean, you know, being Vietnamese in Australia, you just, I learned obviously to adjust to what I often describe as, as having um, kind of my legs, you know, sitting on the fence, uh, having both cultures, trying to manage both cultures with, inter, you know, in my own self. Um, yeah. Did you, is that the way you feel now that you are sitting on the fence managing both cultures? Obviously that was, you know, when you were younger at, at school. Um, how do you feel now? So I, I think now is about embracing the two cultures. I think back then it was trying to identify which one do I, where, where do I fit in? You know, um, part of me wanted to reject the Vietnamese culture because of all of, you know, I had to learn the language and all that stuff. And I thought, well, why do I have to learn the language? I'm now in Australia, I have to learn to speak English, for instance. So that's one thing, one of the things that I kind of in, internalised. Um, and so there was that kind of constant, you know, you go to school, you're surrounded by friends that are um, quite anglicised and you go home and you've got all of these expectations. So it's that, that dual identity. I think now I embrace those two identities. So then you had to, you kind of felt like you had to choose, but now I'm thinking, well, I love being Vietnamese. You know, I, I accept the way that I look. I accept that I've, you know, when I speak, I've got an accent. I'm, I'm more comfortable in my own skin, so to speak. And I still have two cultures. I mean, you know, my 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 partner is is a non-Vietnamese. Um, he's of of, of um, German heritage, so I speak English at home. So our son is mixed. Um, therefore, I feel I feel I'm real. I'm the new Australian. This is what Australia, new Australia looks like. Like we're it's you know you're quite mixed. You you have have the best of many worlds, not just one world. So I thrive in that now. And I think that's what I want through Dawn to bring it out more is that we need to appreciate the differences and how we can celebrate those differences and not fear the difference that, that, that you know, that, that, that is there present in our very culturally rich um, society. You sp you've spoken a couple of times about the expectations that uh, you had from home. What were some of those expectations? Um, the expectations, which I failed, by the way, um, was to <laughs> to be a lawyer. Um, the expectation that I had to marry, you know, Vietnamese, which I didn't, I failed in that. Um, those are the two two major things, I think. Uh, and being the eldest, I was supposed to set an example for my sisters to follow. Um, but of course, because I did not marry a Vietnamese. None of my sisters did either, <laughs> so we all have very a very a very United Nation kind of uh, gatherings, um, and and my thinking and I think being a journalist in the last two decades have really um, taught me to to be quite independent and to be quite assertive, even though I'm mindful. And this is where the Vietnamese or the Asian heritage or the Confucian, Confucius upbringing is that you still respect the elders, you still respect authority, but you know that challenge authority. Whereas 
the ASU not supposed to challenge authority. Um, so the expectation is that when I'm in the in in a environment where there are more Vietnamese elders, then I am supposed to behave like a Vietnamese daughter, um, sister, or person, uh, which means I I should you know I shouldn't be questioning, I shouldn't be challenging anybody, but listening with courtesy and with politeness. Um, so that that's um, that's the expectations, and um, I find that it's still there is that expectations today. Uh, however, I, I I I try to navigate through that. Do you also fail on that expectation because you have you know you have certain opinions and and aren't afraid to voice them as a journalist? So do you bring that uh, back into your home? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I tell you a great example. I um about eight years ago and um, there was this gathering at the um, at one of the Vietnamese community hall out in Kapamata and I was invited so there were hundreds of people there elders and young people there and they had flown this Amer- American Vietnamese in and she is the um, she had invented the heat bomb um, for America for the sol- for American soldiers Mm-hmm. She was she's revered here in our Australian Vietnamese community for being, you know, have an amazing like she works at I think Pentagon and, and NASA and so she's really highly revered woman. She's a mother. So I was in the crowd and she was sharing with me with us what she's you know what she had um, designed. So my I had a my journalist hat on was that. Oh my God! As a woman, I wonder how would you feel having your own children, creating a bomb, um, a heat bomb, actually kills other humans? So I just asked. In it, I believe it was an innocent question, right? And I even couched it so respectfully. I said, "Look, this is respectfully asking you as a journalist. Um, you know, as a woman." Do you, what do you think, you know, how, how do you feel? Do you reflect upon, you know, being a woman and, and having escaped war-torn Vietnam that you actually are now, you're in a position to create this bomb that is a heat bomb that will seek out, you know, that you used in, in wars. And uh, God, before she even answered, every, the people in that hall turned to me and attacked me. How dare you answer that question, you know, You've got no respect for blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, my God, really? Like, I thought I was so respectful. But because of how who she is, you're not supposed to question her. Um, she, you know, to give her credit, she said, oh, I'm, I'm happy to answer. Look, you know, I see my role as protecting our boys. And that she meant the, the American, you know, army. Um, but irrespective of what her answer was, that whole room turned and attacked me because they felt that I was in no position to question this um, really highly regarded and revered woman. So, <laughs> you know, I, I do still get myself into trouble often um, and I try to be delicate and diplomatic when I deal with the, um, those who are the elders in the Asian society, be it yeah. the, be the Koreans, the Vietnamese or Chinese, I really take that into consideration. Um, but it is difficult because of my journalist um, kind of, um, you know, skills and, and, and who I am, who, have, who I've become 
I have been meant that I have to merge the two identities. So you uh, have a career as a journalist. Can you just give us a little bit of a potted career history so far and how this has led to then Dawn? And I just want to unpack a little bit more about um, your work with diversity then. Sure. So I um, so I didn't end up becoming a journalist and I kind of did not know what to do with my life, but I ended up um, landing a, a, a cadetship out with the Fairfax Community Newspaper in the Fairfield area where I grew up, Kevin Matter, where I grew up. And I, by accident, discovered that that, that uh, career and I thought, oh, profession, and so I thought, oh, my God, this is great. You can go out and interview people, get to know their stories, and then write about it. Wouldn't it be amazing to share the many diverse stories that we have in our community? So I went from there to then, you know, knocking down the doors at the ABC and got into the ABC and started as a researcher uh, and really worked my way to become a reporter, producer, broadcaster with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. So I really wanted to be the best journalist that I could be, to learn the skills that I could the best skills that I could have so that I could be a good journalist. Um, so then in 2008, um, by, again, another accidental stumble into politics, um, so I, I then put my hand up to run for the state seat of Cabramatta in 2008 and 2011, causing historic swings to – I stood as a Liberal uh, – causing historic swings to the Liberal Party – uh, in a safe Labor seat, um, from a 30% seat to a 1.5% seat, uh, which was unheard of. And um, and then I left journalism, left my, my wonderful, great, you know, um, second family almost at the ABC to step into the political world and, oh, my God, learned so much and still am learning so much about that whole world. Um, it's... And, and, and it's, it's through my time at, at, in politics in the last eight, well, actually 10 years now, that I realised and I reflected um, as I looked, you know, as you go in and you deal with, you meet with politicians, you meet with businessmen, you meet with CEOs, you meet with all of these boardroom people and you think, oh, my God, there's nobody that looks like me or anything like me, a woman and a coloured woman. And I'm thinking, what's going on? If you walk into the streets of Sydney or anywhere – you, 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 you find that it's quite diverse, but why aren't we seeing this in the institutions that make the decisions for our society? And that's, that led me to give birth to Dawn because I thought, well, we have to have a conversation about this. Why is this happening? Um, and I've discovered that it's not, it's not just the institutions that are stopping us. It's actually we ourselves are stopping ourselves from putting ourselves forward. Um, it's due to our upbringing, it's due to our the influence, our environment. We don't, especially the, you know, if I'm talking from Vietnamese refugee background perspective, we are told, get a good job, you're now here, you're safe, get a house, get married, make money and enjoy life and don't rock the boat, right? Yep. And so I just, and I think that is, that is, it's it's bad for society. It's bad for our country because how are we going to be able to tap into the thinking, the perspectives, the experiences of these individuals to contribute to shaping our policies, our decision? Um, and so I thought I have to call it out. I have to 
try and shift that dial. So I, I then set up Dawn into 2014 to do exactly that. So we can't just blame uh, large organisations for not having diverse people at high levels or, or in general. It's also mm. because people from diverse backgrounds are not putting their hand up. So what kind of things are do you suggest or projects that have you that have you've put in place or you know actual strategies apart from obviously the formation of dawn to encourage yeah. people from diverse backgrounds to actually put their hand up so that the the makeup of of those large organizations or the beginning of town can start looking a bit different so 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 the dawn we started what we call the empty chair conversation which we took internally to um some big corporations and Westpac participated. A couple of law firms such as Bacon McKenzie, Asperst have participated. The Ethics Centre have also held those empty chair conversations. And we brought senior leaders as well as, uh, you know, emerging leaders, as I could like to call them, or employees, to have this conversation and say, you know, how, how, how could, how could organisations perform better? Um, why aren't they realizing, recognizing the, the diversity of staff and how these, these people can contribute to, to the performance of the business? So we started those conversations. And out of the conversations, oh, my God, we, you know, my team of volunteers, amazing team, we've just kind of get so, so the last four years, we have got so much information from participants who are, who have told us that they do have aspirations that they've experienced barriers, and yes, some of them are live their own self-limiting barriers, but it doesn't help that organisations do not also reach out and actually acknowledge their capability. So we are, um, in the last 18 months, we've put in place programs, we've designed, and a lot of that is we work with organisations to say, okay, you know, let's not just take a shelf program that says build leadership capabilities, right? Because you need to understand the mindset of, in particularly those of, of, of linguistically, um, culturally, background, they're thinking their mindset, their experience, because, um, for instance, a few, uh, three weeks ago, we ran a workshop, a one-day workshop um, in Treasury in, in, in Canberra for 25 people from for five departments. And, you know, we, we ran an empty chair conversation and when we ran a session called um, um, Breaking Through Self-Limiting Beliefs, uh, and some role-playing sessions, oh, my God, the amount of um, shares that, that came out of that that, that, that 25, that, that workshop was amazing. People were saying to us, we didn't realise that, that the Australian public service was this diverse. And that was the first time that they were in a workshop where there are diverse faces in the, in the same room. Um, they, uh, a lot of them felt that um, they don't have the opportunity to um, step up to leadership roles within the Australian Public Service because, because the programs and initiatives there, they don't seem to target them, target them. And thirdly, they don't feel safe in sharing. But what we've created is a very safe environment for them to share and then working with them in order to design something that's specifically targeting them. So so that's so I'm really um, um, you know, thrilled really that so many of them are saying we do want to improve the way that we perform in the workplace in a sense that how do we have the confidence to really assert ourselves in meetings? How do we be, how would we be able to reach, you know, 
uh, a senior leader to say, this is what we need for our team. Um, so we have given them um, some of those tools that they can actually think about. And, and I have said to at, at many events or at many of these workshops that one workshop or one event that they go to or one conversation will not fix the problem. It's an ongoing conversation, it's an ongoing development, and it's an ongoing commitment from the individual themselves to drive the conversation internally. So the difference is them. Like if, if they don't drive it, it's not going to change. So, so, so a lot of those things are, um, you know, the the confidence to speak up, the confidence to reach out and and put yourself forward are relevant whether or not you're from a diverse background. Um, they're relevant to all of us as as humans. Um, what do you think? is specifically a cult, the cultural aspect that uh, stops people from putting themselves forward? Look, I think it's the mindset. Um, as, as I said, if I can get my, give myself, if I put myself forward as an example, during the time at the ABC, um, you know, I, was, I think I was the only Asian-based reporter, you know, broadcaster, uh, in, within the organisation. Um, and so I, I know, looking back, reflecting on it, um, you know, my, my journalist colleagues, a lot of them are women. Um, sure, some of them don't assert themselves, but they, but, but, but they have a bit, they, they come across more confident. They come across like if they want something, they do, you know, Put their voice forward. I actually, I, I in my head, I, I weigh things up more. Um, you know, I have to respect that person. I have to uh, be able to not challenge that. There were still those those that that the Confucius um, traits that I think is in your uh, in your DNA if you're brought up as a nation child, um, which I don't believe is there if you're brought up as a in a Western, um, you know, for family, sure, you know, the confidence you're not, you won't have, but I think you have more than say somebody of a coloured skin or uh, of a minority, if you can put it that way. I don't like to see us as a minority. Um, I don't think so. I think there are some cultural traits that hold us back more. Um, and I think um, we're less competitive. We're more collaborative. So it's more of an East-West uh, mentality. Um, we're less individualistic. We're more collaborative. We're more collective. So when you do something, you th well, for me anyway, I think of, you know, the people around me. So, yes, yeah, so I think it's that East-West philosophy um, that distinguishes us from, if you say, you know, what's different, you know, um, a, a, a Western, an Anglo woman might have not have confidence, uh, have the confidence to speak up. Um but I, I don't see many of that as opposed to there might be one of them, there'll be about five of us of, of Asian who who'll be who'll be that that kind that way. And of course it's certainly a, a complex issue that um, that isn't so, that isn't solved with one single solution. And if people want to find out more about Dai's work at Dawn, you can go to Dawn that's D-A-W-N, dawnnetwork.co, that's C-O. So finally, Di, um, what are you most looking forward to for the Lunar New Year? For me, most Lunar New Year is about sweets. 
<laughs> getting those wonderful sweets that uh, we get a lot, uh, you know, out here in Cabramatta. Um, and all of the kids are growing up now because I think there's a rule, I don't know whether or not it's the same within the Chinese um, community, but that once you get to about 16, you stop getting the red envelope. Um, so in our With house, the Chinese community, you, you get it uh, while you're still unmarried. Oh, really? Yeah. No, nah, no, nah, we don't. I think there's an age whereby you stop. So um, so I think there's only one. My niece, my younger niece, she's about 10. Looks like she'll be the only one that will be receiving the, the rot envelope. But, you know, I still give my other, you know, 16-year-old um, nieces, you know, like a little rot envelope. It's a really lovely gesture to give them anyway. They, they enjoy that even though they're 16. It's, it's one of the simplest and I think the most basic tradition that we still keep and I think I'll keep that for a while. Um, so I think spending time with the family, and, yeah, and, and I think that that whole food and, and, and family is going to be something that we look forward to for um, our, our Lunar New Year. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Di. Thanks, Valerie. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Di. Dai was born in Vietnam and in the Vietnamese culture, Lunar New Year is celebrated and is known as Tet. The Vietnamese culture also celebrate the Year of the Pig in 2019 and there are many similar traditions to the Chinese and Korean cultures during the New Year festival. One difference though is one of the animals of the zodiac. Chinese, Vietnamese and Korean cultures do share the same animals of the zodiac except where the rabbit is featured in the Chinese and Korean culture, it's the cat in Vietnamese culture. So legend has it that the rat and the cat were crossing a river on the back of the ox. However, the rat pushed the cat into the river to make sure that it got over the river first, as in to make sure the rat got over the river first. And that's why the rat is the first animal of the zodiac in the 12-year cycle. Ever since then, the cat and the rat have been mortal enemies, though, and apparently that's why cats always hunt rats. <laughs> Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, Stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo, and you can connect with me at valeriekoo.com. That's K-H-O-O. To find out more about the city of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com. Or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and to keep up to date with future episodes, go to newstories.net.au.